Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a wonderful and truly inspirational show for you this evening. Combat pilot and astronaut Fred Gregory is here, and his story is, is truly wonderful. I cannot wait uh, to get uh, started with that. So before we do get started, a few things. Uh, first of all, Social Flight's Fly to Win Challenge is in full swing. We are currently giving away a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset. And be sure to check that out. All you need to do is go to socialflight.com, get the free Social Flight mobile app for Apple or Android devices. You can check in at airports, events, destinations, and you just build points. And it's not a competition of who takes the most points. It's just getting out there and flying even once gets you entered. And if you are on our leaderboard, you get extra entries in order to compete for that prize of that Lightspeed Zulu 3. In addition, we're talking about Lightspeed. Uh, also, on if you go and check out our recordings out on our YouTube channel, just search for Social Flight and you'll see a story out there where we're also talking about our experience with the Delta Zulu headset and some very cool things going on there from Lightspeed. In addition, uh, this show and others will be part of our Social Flight podcast on your local podcasting service, whatever you choose to use, and Social Flight's FA learning system where you can get FA wings, credits, as well as if you are a mechanic, you can be part of the Aviation Maintenance Technician Award Program or also get your IA renewal credits. It's all through Social Flight. Tonight's episode is brought to us by Aspen Avionics, and I'd like to thank them. We fly both in the Bonanza, and then also we're building it into our Titan T-51D Mustang. Behind me, the Evolution 1000 PFD Pro Max system. It's absolutely fantastic. We also have a little teaser out there on our YouTube channel where we are putting an MFD Max in the Bonanza. makes a huge difference, and uh, it, it's just wonderful. Get a chance to check all of that out. Now for tonight's guest. Colonel Fred Gregory's story is truly unparalleled. From childhood beginnings in a largely segregated America, his career broke barriers and excelled in academics, the military, aviation, and space exploration. As an Air Force pilot, he flew 550 missions in Vietnam, saving the lives of countless fellow soldiers. His flight experience as a combat and test pilot includes 7,000 hours in over 50 types of rotary and fixed-wing aircraft. He became the first African-American pilot, uh, African to pilot a spacecraft as part of NASA and spent 455 hours in space over the course of three shuttle missions. He is so respected at NASA that he eventually rose to become NASA's deputy and acting administrator. His story is included in Meredith Bagby's new book, The New Guys, which I'll show you here. Be sure to check that out. We'll also have Meredith on in a future show. But The New Guys is about the barrier-breaking astronaut class of 1978. In 2021, the Air Force Academy named a building Gregory Hall in recognition of his distinguished career. And his honors, medals, and awards are so numerous 
that listing them here would take away precious time from tonight's program. And so suffice to say that Colonel Gregory is truly an American living legend. I am honored to have him here with us tonight. I'm going to bring him on the line with us now. Please welcome to Social Flight Live, Colonel Fred Gregory. How are you, sir? Jeff, how are you? Great, great to be here. Thank you so, so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here. Uh, I am just thrilled to get started. And let me start at the beginning. Your, your story is absolutely fascinating to me, uh, not just what's in the book, the new guys, but so much more that I learned from, from diving into it and talking with you in preparation for this show. Tell me a little bit about how your love of flying got started because it's much, much more about than, than being an astronaut, if that even is something to say. It's, it's all about aviation. You know, I think it's, uh, when you look back, you try to figure out why it is that you wanted to go fly. Uh, when I was a youngster, really young, about five or six years old, my dad had a bunch of friends, and uh, they would come to our house in Washington, D.C. I'd sit on the floor and listen to them talk and, it, and 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 I learned at that very early age pilots talk with their hands and you, you really don't have to say an awful lot uh, but you you know exactly what is being said you know and so I listened to them I realized they were not airline pilots these were combat pilots and I became very enthusiastic about flying at a very early age my, my dad's really interest, I think he had a lot of interest in airplanes, but he also liked fast cars. And uh, when one year, uh, I think 1955 or so, Curtis LeMay had sports car racing at many Air Force bases. And it was just one year. And my dad took me to um, a, the sports car racing at Andrews. And that's when I discovered the greatest sound in the world was a Ferrari as it downshifted into a turn. But in those days, you could wander around the base and across the taxiway, there was a ramp and there were airplanes on the ramp, military airplanes. Um, and we walked over to it and I touched them and I realized the greatest smell in the world was aviation fuel. And you talked to the pilots and I got excited. And I would go to the air shows out there and I saw the Thunderbirds I think when I was 14, 13 or 14. And one of the, I, after the show, I walked up to one of the pilots and asked them how I could become a Thunderbird pilot. His name was Creech, Lieutenant Creech or Captain Creech. I had a very significant uh, Air Force career. And he said, well, they're building a school in Colorado at the base of the Rocky of, of, of Pikes Peak. That's where you ought to go. As a Boy Scout, I had climbed Pikes Peak. And so I decided when I was 15 or so, that's where I wanted to go. And I honestly thought it was a flying school when I didn't realize it was a university until actually I got out there. So that's how the flying thing got in my blood. And uh, it has been a part of my life uh, since I was a youngster. Now, you, you have a knack for understating things. And I wanna go back for a minute there because those folks, those pilots, that, as I understand it, that were hanging out at your house and you were listening to stories about those, those were Tuskegee Airmen. Well, I didn't learn that until uh, I, uh, 1977 or so, uh, when the application came out or the announcement of the uh, astronaut program came out. 
And uh, I looked at it, and I was a test pilot at the, at the time, loaned to NASA uh, from the Air Force. And I looked at it, and it looked very complex to apply for this program. And I had a call from a gentleman who was a very close friend of my father and his wife to my mother. And he said, you need to apply for this program for myself personally and for the Tuskegee Airmen. I said, who in the heck are the Tuskegee Airmen? I had never heard of them before. And he said, well, you hung out with them when you were a little kid. And I said, you mean those? They were Tuskegee Airmen? And he told me the whole story of the experiment and how the experiment was a failure because it was to demonstrate that Negroes were not smart enough to fly. And so that obviously was disproved. And the per person I was talking to was Ben Davis. And I only knew him as Ben Davis. Well, it ends up that he was Lieutenant Colonel Ben Davis, the first commander of the 99th uh, Pursuit Squadron. And then at that point, Lieutenant General uh, Benjamin Davis. And but again, I only knew him as Ben Davis, and I knew his, his wife as Aunt Agatha. And so that's how I grew up, just knowing first name, uh, first name, last name for the men, and aunt for the uh, for for all the wives. Wow. So what brought you then? You 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 know, you didn't do civilian flying. You went straight into the military. So what was that path like? Because uh, coming obviously from a, a highly educated background and family, and you that you chose this path of going towards military flying. What was the? Tell me a little bit about that. You know, that's a, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I said that um, my dad uh, was not a flyer. He was an electrical engineer. He went to Case Institute, which is now part of Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, but he, he got his uh, master's at MIT. Uh, and because of segregation at that time, was not able to get a job in either the government or in the commercial world. And so he became a teacher of electricity in uh, vocational high schools. DC, eventually becoming uh, an associate superintendent of schools in DC. Uh, but, um, and so his career changed. But the thing about my dad was he never told me no. And if I ever came in with an idea, he would, he would support it. And, and even though he may have thought it was wrong, and he would wait until I discovered it should have been, his, he should have said, no, you can't do that. But what I had was a family that really encouraged you to do something you thought impossible yesterday to do it tomorrow and uh, we we it was not it was not something they would preach it was just something that said tomorrow the bar is going to be higher and you're going to mm -hmm. have to jump higher to get there and so i i grew up in a very supportive family uh but there was no aviation in the family i was the first one to kind of break the mold uh, and decide to become a, I guess, a professional uh, uh, aviator in one case, but a, uh, but a, but a patriot. And so, did you? How did you get? What? How did you choose uh, the Air Force, and how did you get into there and become a pilot? Well, I, I somebody told me there were a couple of other military academies around. I, I have never acknowledged them. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the only one I ever wanted to go to was this new academy, and uh, and so right out of high school, I actually went to a college in Massachusetts, Amherst College, 
And uh, I went there because my, my uncle had graduated in 1928. My grandfather had graduated in 1898 from, from Amherst. And so I was kind of the anointed one. But it was very clear when I got there that that was not where my future was going to be. And so my dad actually, um, at least the story I'm told, went into the halls of Congress looking for a congressman who would nominate me to the academy. From Washington, D.C., there are no congressmen or senators. Mm. And so you had to get your nomination from somewhat place outside of D.C., unless you got a, a vice presidential nomination or presidential, or you were the son or daughter, well, son at that time, of a Medal of Honor winner. And so he actually found one. And uh, uh, I, uh, my sponsor was, or my nominating congressman was Adam Clayton Powell from, from New York City. And uh, so for the four years I was at the academy, my home of record was the Abyssinian Baptist Church in, in, uh, in Harlem, New York. And I have all the records to show that. And it says, well, and there's a, also one in DC, but my primary one was in New York because I had to be was sponsored by a congressman from New York. Uh, <laughs> and they the church as your home. Yeah, the church is my home. <laughs> and uh, many, many years later, I actually was able to uh, 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 do, well, not a sermon, but give a talk from the, from the pulpit uh, there at the church. And it was probably one of the greatest thrills that I've ever had. Uh, to do that. Wow. Um, now, what was it like at the academy? Because did you, again, I, I opened by explaining that when you look at that time frame and through some of the things you were just explaining, obviously, the United States was fairly segregated society at the time. And, um, and so this was already kind of breaking barriers to go down this path. What was it like both before that and going into the military? The, the military was way ahead of the civilian world. Uh, because the uh, the military integrated uh, in 1947, and uh, you know, for the because there was no very little history written about essentially no history written about our participation earlier. When I did things, I thought I was the first to do that, mm. and so when uh, when uh, General uh, uh, Davis called and told me that there had been a history. I felt really relieved. It's like I didn't, you know, carve the torch and light the torch myself. That torch was given to me uh, by my predecessors. Um, when I went to the Air Force Academy, I was in the class of 1964, which was the first, uh, the first, well, uh, in 1964, I was in the sixth graduating class. And I was the only one in my class of entering 790 folks. So I wasn't the first to attend the academy. In the year before, 1963, uh, we had three brothers, one of them, Chuck Bush, um, I had known, Ike Payne and Roger Sims were in the first, uh, in the class of 1963 and would have been the first black uh, graduates from the school. Wow, and, and so tell me a little bit about your time there and, and how you found your way into the cockpit for the first time. I I look back at my experience, my years at the academy, and I say that that was the pinnacle. That was the that was the beginning 
uh, of a, a life that I have loved since the moment I checked in. Uh, my classmates are my closest friends. Uh, we have been friends since the summer of 1960. Uh, I think I know every one of them uh, at this point, and we could still continue to meet. Now, there was no flying at all at the Air Force Academy when I got there. They, they have a flying uh, program there uh, now that my grandkids went through, uh, but um, it was purely academic. Uh, and it was interesting. I thought it was an engineering and, you know, STEM. We call STEM now a, a, a university. But I've many, uh, many times realized that about 60% of everything I learned there was STEM. 40% of it, however, it might be considered liberal arts. And so we had economics. So we had political science. We had law, history, English. Uh, and those things. I think coupled with the base of science, the STEM, really prepared me for uh, the rest of my career. Because I was a very good engineer, but I had to be able to talk to lawyers. I had to be able to understand finances, the economics, the world that I moved into and diplomacy, the political science and history really helped me. And so when I, when I graduated, I did not graduate anywhere near the big top of the class at all. In fact, I was in the upper three quarters of my class. And I say <laughs> that with, uh, <laughs> well, I'm very proud of the fact. But um, I think that the four years I spent there really prepared me uh, for the rest of my life, for the rest of my career. Uh, now, at that time, we were just entering Vietnam. and all of us were pilot qualified at that time, just to be admitted into the academy. And so during the four years, some lost that qualification, but I would say that 85 to 90% of us were still pilot qualified. Everybody wanted to fly fighters, uh, Phantoms, well, 105s, Thuds, 100s. And I, early in my career, decided I'm not gonna do what everybody else does. And so I decided to go to helicopter school. And so myself and about six or seven, maybe 10 classmates, all decided to go to helicopters. 400 of my classmates wanted to go to fighters. And uh, so we got a whole lot of harassment, uh, you know, <laughs> whoop, 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 like this. And, and that's true because we did fly slower than they did. But in Vietnam, I actually rescued one of my classmates. And so suddenly flying in helicopters wasn't, you know, a downgrade at all. They began thinking, maybe this is a good, in fact, one or two of my classmates actually transitioned to helicopters after that. So I began my career in helicopters and it was probably the best decision I had ever made. Wow, that's, uh, and let me go to that thing that you just said. Do you, did you know at the time you were rescuing one of your classmates? No, you didn't know who it was. Uh, you knew what the aircraft call sign was. And you would you you would talk to the person on the ground uh, with your with their with their handheld radio and our uh, helicopter radio, uh, but you never knew who it was that you were picking up until you got got them in inside. And in some cases, you didn't know until you got back to the base and the person got out. Mm. And so yeah, your your concentration was flying the helicopter, looking ahead. Uh, uh, 
you know, you be as safe as you could and have mission success. And the pararescue guys, the, the PJs, were the ones who were taking care of the rescue guy, the rescued folks in the back. Wow. Um, let's talk about that flying and that helicopter flying that you did in Vietnam for a minute. And I want to sh show uh, a picture here just to give give folks uh, a little peek. This is this isn't the helicopter everybody thinks about when they think about Vietnam. And and yet this is a helicopter you were intimately familiar with. Tell us about the HH-43 Pedro. Oh, this was uh, built by command in, uh, in Connecticut. Um, it did not have a tail rotor, which is obvious. Uh, it had synchronized uh, blades, and so they were like a mix master. Uh, they would, uh, you know, it was like synchronized guns through the prop. Uh, it had two roles. One, uh, and in the picture you just showed, it showed a hoist on the side of it. And so we had a search and rescue mission uh, where we would be directed toward a downed airman or, or whatever, and we would pull those guys out and uh, we could lower this thing through the canopy, the tree canopies, and then rescue them. The second thing we did uh, was on the, we, it was also a fire suppression helicopter. And so there was a fire suppression kit. Um, and if there was an aircraft arriving at a base that had lost power, utility power, or it crashed, we were able to suppress the flames so that our firemen could go in and pull the pilot and uh, co-pilot, if there was such a person, out of the aircraft and save them. And I actually did that once with, a, with an F-4 that uh, had lost utility hydraulics, went off the end of the runway, uh, across the perimeter road into a, a kind of a wild area that caught on fire. And we went in and suppressed the flames. The, 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 uh, the force of the wind with this 843 was highly directional. So you could blow flames away. Uh, we pulled the uh, pilot and co-pilot out, uh, saved them, and it was after the fact they said, "Did you know you were in the middle of a minefield?" Well, no, I didn't <laughs> at the time. <laughs> I don't think it would have stopped us from going in. But we also used the hoist quite a lot, and uh, many of my rescues were uh, by uh, by using the hoist to pull uh, downed airmen uh, out from under uh, long. Uh, tall trees uh, out in hostile territory. That's Which, amazing. Which, by the way, was everywhere again, off, off the base. <laughs> so, so you suppressed the fire through, was it, was it uh, through other things that it released, or was it mainly through the, the downwash? No, nah, we, we, we had this fire suppression kit uh, that um, they, we carried firemen on those particular missions. We would put the kit down on the ground, then back away, land, the firemen would get out, would uncoil the hose, and then they would walk toward the airplane, and when they released the nozzle, a foam came out. There's a lot of discussion about that foam now as far as causing you know, of, of future problems, uh, but uh, this suppressed the fire hmm. uh, and suppressed the flames, but we could also blow flames away by using the uh, uh, the uh, the rotor wash from the from the helicopter, so we use both this fire suppression kit and the and the wind generated by the blades uh, to move the flame away, so that we could get to the pilot and co-pilot in the in the cockpit. Wow! So you 
Now, we've got to put this in perspective. 550 combat missions is mind-boggling. <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit about some of the most memorable ones or what it is, how, what it's like to live for that, uh, doing that, that incredible amount of work and the amount of stress that that, that takes for 550 missions. Well, you know, that's what we were sent over to do is uh, so that others may live. And, and that's, you know, that was in our heart when we went there. It didn't matter what resources we lost as long as we saved. Uh, we were on alert. And, and I had earlier described two missions that we had. One was this fire suppression, which would generally be in and around the, uh, the uh, base. Uh, the, uh, the search and rescue could be 100 miles or so from the base. And you, instead of having firemen on board, you would have pararescue guys, PJs, on board. And so uh, each of the missions was, was exciting. It would be difficult to identify one as more than the other, but uh, I remember one we went to, uh, we had a, an O1 that went down and uh, it was south of the base at Da Nang, about 50 kilometers or so. And we were in a hover, and there were A1s flying and suppressing the bad guys all around us. It looked like World War III out there. And I'm in a hover, stable hover, and we had the hoist down. And I looked down at my knees, and my knees were doing like this, and they were, they were hysterical. And I hit the pilot, the co-pilot, and I said, watch that. And we're sitting there laughing at my knees as we're A1s are flying and we're hoisting people. And so I think it was more the, the excite, it was the excitement of the save. Uh, and it didn't much matter where it was or what, what we were doing, but that was the, the excitement of, um, of being a rescue uh, pilot there in Vietnam. I, I had read once and somewhere that, that one of your rescue missions you weren't even able to put the helicopter all the way down. You were on like the edge of, of something. <laughs> we, <laughs> well, that, that was several yeah, occasions. You laughed at that. Well, I, <laughs> you know, we went in uh, a, a Marine squad call and they were, uh, they were trapped and they were suffering heat exhaustion. And uh, I don't know why a Marine helicopter or an army helicopter didn't go in to pick them up, but we were the, anointed ones to go in and uh, they were right at the edge of a ravine and I couldn't there was no room between there was nothing in front of me and so all I could do as I remember was just put the right front gear and the right rear gear on the dirt the left side was a ravine and I think there were eight or nine uh, members of that squad uh, and so I had two PJs, I, we had eight Marines and then a pilot and a co-pilot and they got in with full gear and they had stuff hanging out on the hoist and we took them to a medical facility there at Da Nang and it, when they began falling out, crawling out of the back of the helicopter, it looked like going to a circus and seeing the clowns come out of this little tiny car. And in <laughs> fact, the medics came out and they were just in, they were in, in, in awe watching the number of Marines coming out. But that, that was just another one of the great times we had was to 
you know, the success was getting these folks back into care if necessary, but saving them. Wow. I, I mean, you read about the risks of being a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and, and that that was pretty much the most dangerous job with your susceptibility to ground fire. What do you attribute? Yeah, it could be, but I, some of my friends who flew up in the, in the Vietnam, you know, up in the North Vietnam, they had a heck of a time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had uh, 14 classmates, 14 or 15 that became POWs. Mm. And uh, they weren't released, I believe, until, what was it, 19, um, oh, goodness, I can't remember when it was. 1973, maybe, when we brought them all home. Uh, no, those are, the, those, are the, those are the guys that really sacrificed. Um, God bless them. Wow. So tell me about coming home from Vietnam and uh, transitioning to a different type of, of flying. Well, I came home, I was flying the H-43, obviously, in Vietnam. When I came back, I came to Whiteman. Uh, Air Force Base in Nomnasta, Missouri, and this is before the B-2s were there, and we had um, Minutemen uh, missiles surrounding that base, and they needed to move crews, uh, the launch crews, the 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 uh, cooks, security forces from from the base to these remote sites, and so I was flying a Huey. Uh, hmm. At that point, it was an H4, uh, a, a UH-1F, F model, uh, had a GE engine in. All the other Hueys had Lycomings, but the GE engine was the one that we used with our H3s, the Jolly Greens. And so the Air Force bought a lot of these GE engines, and then uh, Bell converted uh, those engines to uh, be the power, primary power plant for these Hueys. Um, this was a lot of point A to point B to point C to point D back to A, and I was flying about between about 70 and 80 hours a month uh, in that uh, in the Huey. So I racked up a lot of time. Now in my pilot training, uh, my first airplane that I flew as basic was a T-28, a North American uh, Trojan. And so at the base, since they knew that in my early training, I had uh, flown a fixed wing airplane and they had no other pilots, but they had a Cessna 310 there, U3, I think. And so they said, well, Fred, since you're fixed wing qualified also, <laughs> which was in pilot training, by the way, you get to fly that and you need to fly that 15 to 20 hours a month to justify it being here to SAC headquarters. So I was flying 75, 80 hours in the Huey, and then maybe 20 hours a month in this um, uh, U3. And one month I actually logged 120 hours flying. Uh, and I was there for um, 15 months and got a little over 1,300 Huey hours in that, thir in that uh, 13 months. So I was really flying an awful lot while I was there. Now, early in my life, I decided instead of become a Thunderbird pilot, which was my first interest, I was gonna have fun, uh, but make a contribution. So that became my goal. 
and the flying over and over again. Every day I was making a contribution, but the fun was waning, waning. And so it was time for me to leave and I decided for, to change jobs. And so I went to um, the library and found out I could apply, apply for test pilot school. And so I applied. Now at the same time, and I still don't understand this, the Air Force came back and said, Fred, we're taking you out of helicopters, putting you in fixed wing aircraft in any airplane you want, at any base you want. And I couldn't believe it. I said, I want to go front seat F4s and I want to go to Davis Montham in Tucson. They said, done. And so I, to this day, I don't understand that. But they <laughs> sent me awesome. to Randolph, back to Randolph. And this time I transitioned to T-38s and then went out to Davis Montham and went front seat F4s. And all of my classmates had been backseaters. They were moving to front seat. And here I come from helicopters directly in the front seat. And I was competitive. I was very competitive. About a week before graduation, I got a call from the military personnel center. And they said, Fred, remember you applied for test pilot school? And I said, vaguely. And they said, well, you have been accepted. Um, you're going to be on exchange with the Navy. I said, oh, really? And then they said, as a helicopter pilot. And I said, let me think about this. I went to my uh, DO there, uh, Davis Mompin. And uh, again, I had not graduated. I was a week from graduation. I already had a port call. I was on my way back to Thailand. Uh, it was all packed and everything. And uh, his name was Gibson, Hoot Gibson, uh, Colonel Gibson. And I told him the dilemma. He said, let's go fly, let's go to Pax River, which was in Maryland. And so the two of us headed off on a Friday evening or Saturday morning and arrived at PAX. We got a couple of taps on the way across. In, in, a, phantom? in, huh? in a phantom? Huh? In a phantom. Yeah, I was in the front. He was in the back. He was the instructor pilot. Yeah, I think we know who Hoot Gibson is. Okay. <laughs> well, um, Hoot Gibson, this is not Hoot Gibson, the astronaut. Oh. This is, this is another Hoot Gibson, F4 guy. In fact, he was a one of the very early, if not the Thunderbirds, the group that preceded the Thunderbirds. And so oh, he wow. flew in F-84s, I believe, in whatever that group was. We went to, we went to PAX. I walked in and met the, uh, the uh, school skipper. And I said, you see that airplane? He says, yeah. And I said, I'm coming here to school. He says, I know. And I said, uh, um, and he said, as a helicopter pilot, and I said, can we talk about this? And so I, I don't know if I convinced him or he was just, you know, he was an Air Force stupid person coming down here. So I was able, to, he said, I could do both the rotary and as much of the fixed wing as I could. And so I said, that's a deal. And went back to Davis Wampum and then uh, started the school. It was a 10 month school at that time. And I finished the helicopter program and a lot of the, T, uh, the fixed wing. Uh, program and uh, luckily on the certificate it did not say helicopter it just said test pilot uh, and my uh, initial assignment was to Wright Patterson we had the 4950th test wing there they assigned me to cargo ops which was helicopters and a lot of strange airplanes uh, none of them you would you would ever want to fly and uh, there was a fighter ops there and I went over and negotiated with the fighter 
uh, leader and said, can I come fly F-4s here? And he said, well, if you can get out of cargo ops. And so I was able to get myself, well, what ended up happening was um, I maintained currency, became maintained currency in the F-4, the F-100, T-37, the H-3, and the Huey. Um, so uh, I was chief flight examiner in the Huey, the F-4, and the T-37, and Stanaval in the H-3. And you could only be qualified in two aircraft. Um, you could, in the Air Force, you could only be qualified in two airplanes. And so I think they called on like Wednesday or Thursday, the week before they call Systems Command Headquarters and say, next week, Captain Gregory will be qualified in these two airplanes. And so I have Jim Abramson, Colonel Abramson was my wing commander at that point. And uh, I, I know he would, he just sit and laugh about the things that I did. One time on a, an emergency procedure test, I put down for an F-4, what do you do with lose an engine? I put down auto-rotate. And I thought it was funny, uh, but I didn't think so at all. Uh, but uh, that, that was kind of my career. I had uh, very interesting things. I flew for the National Severe Storms Lab in, uh, in Oklahoma. I flew... So, uh, so Jay, Jay Apt, who's been on the show, uh, pinged me this morning and to let you know. Obviously, you guys shared an office. He wanted you to tell a little bit about lightning strikes and some of the other fun you oh. had. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, you know, people tried to kill you a few two times, as I understand it. You know, I, I will never say that Colonel Abe, uh, Abramson tried to kill me, but I think he did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we would, uh, they were evaluating the Severe Storms Laboratory in conjunction with, I'm sure, NOAA or someone, whoever, whoever does weather. They were evaluating Doppler radar uh, to determine if they could see reflectivity in there, but primarily turbulence, because they were interested in whether they could direct commercial airliners through a storm by being able to see and predict what the turbulence levels would be inside. The reflectivity, of course, was um, 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 hail. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I remember when we went down there, they said, we can guarantee that we can keep you out of hail less than three quarters of an inch. Uh, no, greater than three quarters of an inch. Um, I said, well, three quarters of an inch is, is harmful. He said, well, yeah, that's why we can protect you or stuff that's even worse than that. Uh, and so I, I made uh, 65 or 70 penetrations in some really horrible stuff uh, down there. I was flying out of Tinker. Uh, the other one that he put me on was, um, we were looking at trying to correlate uh, real real data with simulator data, computer-generated data, as far as uh, Reynolds numbers and things of that nature. So on the front of this F-4, they mounted a cone, and on the cone that ran along the surface was a hypodermic needle. And so they could look at the surface effect, uh, Reynolds number they could generate. So we, we were the real-time people. And for this, I had to fly at 50 feet, approximately 50 feet, at, at about Mach 1. And uh, so I did that uh, going north over Lake Huron. And uh, at 50 feet, you know, the horizon's really not that far out. And a ship came up over that horizon. And I must have missed the ship by less than a quarter of a mile. And I know to this day that ship captain was wondering what the heck was that that just went by? Because we had to have broken some 
some glass <laughs> and nothing when we went by. But those would be typically uh, what uh, what I I did uh, there. I did blind landings in the H3. Uh, we did a lot of um, pallet separation uh, with the with the Huey up there. It was a lot of fun, an awful lot of fun uh, doing it. But NASA then needed a test pilot current in rotary and fixed wing. They didn't have any. They came to the Air Force. And they said, well, yeah, I think we have a bunch of them. And I think I was the only name on it. And so they loaned me to NASA uh, to um, uh, low-speed transonic work that was being done at the Langley Research Center across the runway from Langley Air, from the Air Force side of the, uh, at, at Langley Air Force Base. And uh, that's where I was. Uh, they flew me down there. Um, and I. I well, you know, I, Jim Patton was a was the leader of that group, and uh, they walked me in the hangar, and there were 25 or 30 airplanes in there, all kinds, everything in there. And I was just, it was like a kid going into a candy store. And I, I, I looked at it, and I said, which one do I get to fly? He says, all of them. <laughs> so I, we, we picked up and left Bright Pat and moved to uh, Hampton. And, uh, and so that's where the, you know, that was kind of the end of the first part of the, of the story uh, as far as staying in the atmosphere was concerned. Is that, is that where you were at the time that the application process came out in 1970, around 1978? Yeah, I think the application, I think they were talking about it in 76. I think mm -hmm. I saw the application probably in 1977. Uh, and Let's see. Wait, no, no, no. I'm I'm off a year. Uh, Nineteen. Well, no, I'm actually I'm not. Um, early in 1977, we saw the application, and that's <laughs> where General Ben Davis called me and encouraged me uh, to apply. And also, uh, you have to be an old Trekkie fan, Lieutenant Uhura from Star Trek. Uh, she was a communications officer on the Enterprise. Um, she uh, cold called NASA and said, I want to get more minority, I want to get minorities and women into this program. And NASA said, well, go to it. And her program, her company was called Women in Motion. And she did a campaign across the country. Now, I can't guarantee these numbers, but before she went on the road, NASA only had about 1,500 applicants. Mm -hmm. One month or so that she was doing it, we went from 1,500 to more than 8,000. And, wow. and uh, she personally contacted people like Sally Ride, uh, Judy Resnick. Uh, I saw her on TV, and uh, she was on TV, and she was looking directly at me on TV, and she said, I want you to apply for the astronaut program. And she was talking to me. I know she was talking to me. And so with Ben Davis's encouragement, and, uh, and Lieutenant Uhura challenging. Um, I filled out the application. I realized that since I had not gone to Edwards Test Pilot School, and had never been at, never been to Edwards actually, and, we, and I knew that's where all of the selections for uh, Air Force applicants to NASA. Um, I'd, I sent in a military application, knowing that I, it didn't have a chance, especially with the helicopter beginning. But I also sent a application as a civilian directly to NASA. Mm, uh, mm. 
And uh, on the last day, on the 30th of June, 1977, and I heard nothing at all until about August when General Tom Stafford called me. And he essentially said, who the hell are you? He said, John Young, who was chief of the office, uh, called me and said, who is this Air Force officer applying directly as a civilian? And so Tom called me and said, I just need to know who you are. I've never heard of you, which is exactly what I expected him to say. So I told him who I was, what I'd done. He says, okay, and he hung up. And I heard nothing else until November when they invited me down for an interview. And it could have been very much, very close to the last of the interviews. Uh, and uh, I was at the Armed Forces Staff College at the time. And I was again within about a week of graduating. Uh, and I got a little buck slip in my mailbox that said, call George Abbey. And I called him and I, he said, this is the way, and they still do it. Are you you're still interested in this job down here? And, <laughs> and that's the way he, he asked the question. And I'm dumbfounded. And I said, of course I am. He says, well, you've been selected and you've got to keep this a secret until noon. And this was about 7.30. And he, thank goodness he didn't swear me to that because I kept the secret about five minutes. <laughs> and so I was on the outside of the uh, outside of the you know the Air Force uh, grapevine, and, and it wasn't until later I, I learned that to hear nothing was positive, and if you heard something, it meant that you have you know had been eliminated from the program. Uh, and so it was quite a, it was really, really quite a shock uh, to me to have been selected. Uh, 15, 15 pilots and uh, 20 uh, mission specialists. I didn't realize, I didn't know honestly until I got to Johnson uh, in uh, June of that year that I was still in the Air Force. I thought that <laughs> he'd pick me up as a civilian, but what happened was that the uh, Air Force decided to keep me and, and uh, count me as one of their applicants. So that's how I got into the program. A feather in their cap. And, and, and I, I want to, uh, you know, again, mention because it, it's all that there's, there's quite a story here in the book by Meredith Bagby of the new guys about that. NASA, NASA had, quite frankly, a, a terrible history when it came to in, uh, uh, women and minorities up until that 1978 class and that, that whole push with Ohura, and one of the things that's so fascinating to me is just what you mentioned. That's the thing they all, that everyone mentions in that, that that was part of the '78 class. What was it that that hooked you? They're like seeing the ad with Lieutenant Ohura from Star Trek. <laughs> I uh, later met her, and we became very close friends. Um, and uh, you know, she was such a personable. Not, not, not just a great actress, but very personal. And uh, we talked about her son a lot. And it, she was just a pleasure uh, to be around. And again, it was years later, that's when I read, that, that's when I began to, well, information began to flow into my mind about how she had just walked into NASA and said, look, the, I don't see any of my people here. And obviously, she was talking about uh, both color and gender, mm. and uh, that's what she did. I think I think 
her her uh, success as noteworthy, in fact, chapter or maybe book worthy, uh, what what she did. Um, I will always be very appreciative of of her energy that she spent. Wow. So tell me about getting to the point of going and then going into space. The the first thing we did when we all gathered, uh, it, it wasn't about the space shuttle at all. It was NASA was loaded with acronyms, and even NASA is an acronym. And so for the first several weeks, we learned NASA acronyms, and they actually gave us a book of ac acronyms. <laughs> but unfortunately, like SMS, which we know as shuttle main. Uh, um, SMS, no, uh, uh, mission simulator, shuttle mission simulator. You, you look SMS, there would be like six or eight things SMS. And then you had to figure out in that line, which one are we specifically talking about in here? Um, then we went on tours of the, um, of the, the 10 NASA centers uh, to see, you know, the other things that NASA did because they also did aero to aero. They had science, um, and obviously they had all of the administrative support and logistic support to maintain these these centers. And it was eye-opening uh, to uh, to me because I really didn't know much about NASA other than the aero part that I worked on at Langley. And I was really fascinated uh, by how much they really did and how passionate and dedicated the folks were who were working on these programs. Um, and then uh, we took meteorology and we took geology and we took all of these kind of prep courses that uh, were probably more applicable if you were going to go to the moon. Uh, but uh, we, we still got them. So it became part of our, our knowledge base. And then we began the study of the space shuttle. Uh, first of all, the, you know, the overall program, what its intent was. And at that time, it was going to fly about 75 uh, missions a year. <laughs> and, uh, and so we were all optimistic that we were going to be flying several times a year. Um, obviously, that changed. Uh, but then we began uh, individual systems, uh, like the hydraulic system or the, uh, or the auxiliary power unit system or the reaction control system. And then we would begin talking about integrating the two, you know, the many, many different systems on board. And we under, then we pretty much understood that this was not a single system aircraft. This was a system of systems. And so we learned that. We learned about the uh, computers and basically how, how old they were, the technology was, because they had to be hardened so that they would not be upset by gamma from the, uh, from the sun. And so they are. They were archaic, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if you, they had very few lines of code that you could modify. And so, if you wanted to, you know, like put in lower the landing gear, you might have to take out one of the shuttle main engines. I mean, it was it was really funny. Uh, this is an exaggeration, but that's kind of the way it was. For every line of code that you wanted to add, you had to take out something. Uh, and so um, once you learn that, then you went into these um, simulators that um, uh, would you'd have to, you know, troubleshoot uh, failures that your training uh, your training person had integrated into your that particular session. 
and then you were assigned uh, to a crew and then you you then you began to realize how important the crew the team was uh, for the successful mission um, and uh, it really was it was like a it was it was almost like a ballet um, we had a training team and the training team was to introduce as many failures as they could to make fools of us and we as a team as a crew we're just going to solve those those uh, those uh, those problems um to, you know to make to make fun of the crew um, to make fun of the training team and so it was a very it was a wonderful experience the training uh and the preparation for flight um they failed they trained you for failures um, and I suspect that uh, 90, 95% of every training mission we went to had a series of failures. It was very rare to see nominal ascent or on orbit or re-entry. And uh, it wasn't until we got in the orbiter for our mission that we saw really our first nominal uh, launch. <laughs> and uh, the, the orbiter was so reliable you know, you're sitting there just keyed and waiting for that failure to occur and nothing ever occurred. And so if you were thinking of, you know, you were gonna make this major save and be on the front page of the LA Times saying, Gregory saves the space shuttle. No, it never existed. Yeah, so <laughs> it was eight and a half minutes to space. You were on orbit, you did all the great science and learning that you could. And then it was an hour of relaxation on the on the re-entry so it was a it was a fantastic experience that uh, you went up we came back as a much much um uh, a person with much greater insight in this but an understanding of how big that is out there and uh how important this this one person or this one thing is that made it all just kind of work it was quite an experience. It was quite an experience. What was the most striking thing to you when you think back on your on your first mission out of the experience, aside from it all not like having to save the day? Um, what uh, viscerally, what what strikes you about that? Well, you know, that's a great question, Jeff. And you know, you could sit and think. Uh, you know, here we went from zero to 17,500 miles an hour in eight minutes. We're in orbit. We're circling the Earth. That's beautiful. And, you know, look, but I will tell you honestly, my first mission was a um, space laboratory mission. And uh, in the payload bay, we had a laboratory built by the European Space Agency. And in that laboratory, the scientists who flew with us did experiments to to try to figure out what the difference in the results was in microgravity as opposed to gravity and it was so interesting because um, what I found was that in many cases they had already presupposed what they were going to see and they were only going to go there to validate what they had already decided was going to be the outcome. And so as you watch them, you'd see them push back from an experiment with big eyes and say, wow, I didn't know that. And one of them actually 
one of them actually came to me and he said, you know, this is, I'm going to, I'm this, oh, he says, I'm going to have to rewrite chapters in my books. He says, I'm going to have to change my lecture notes. And then after pause, he said, you know, I'm going to have to apologize to my students. I said, well, why? And he said, because I told them what I was going to see. And, and it was not like that at all. And what I saw were very arrogant scientists become very humble students just in front of my eyes. And so it, it was that, that, which, that was the kind of thing that had the greatest impact on me was that, you know, we were on a journey. This was a discovery journey. And then that's why you go on these journeys uh, to learn, uh, to do things that no one has done before, uh, to raise the bar. And that's what I, when I get down to it, that's the thing that impressed me, had more impact on me than anything else was, was seeing things that no one had anticipated before. Isn't that wonderful? It, it, it is so easy for people in so many facets of, of life to simply look for proof and, uh, of what they believe or, or proof of what they already think is going to happen. And you're talking about true discovery and being having your mind opened that that's a way you can live. I think it is. It, it, and it's, it, it, it kind of comes, you know, you kind of come back and say, well, wait a minute, maybe this is not an individual thing. Um, and so I began talking not about, uh, you know, um, going and ending at this point. Um, I began talking about a journey uh, that we're on and that um, there are a lot of adventures in that journey, but this journey has no destination, uh, has no end, and everything you do enables you to do something more. And that, that's what I am, I, well, that's, that's the great thing about programs that like, like NASA does, like Elon Musk, like Jeff Bezos, and folks like that. They don't see this as a launch, and that's the end. They see it as a method of learning and discovering and having adventures and with no end in sight out there. And it's, it's just fascinating, uh, fascinating mm -hmm. to me. One of the other lessons, I think, uh, uh, of the story for, for both NASA and what you experienced is also about understanding how to overcome things and what to do about setbacks. You were Capcom for Challenger. Uh -huh. Um, tell me about that day, but then also about what it meant as an organization, as an individuals, to, to move forward from that. If you, you could start out um, by saying that um, all of us in the program had, um, had mentally always went through risk assessment. And you know we were either going to try to eliminate it, minimize it, or just accept the risk. And before each of us launched, I believe each of us thought to ourselves, there's a great possibility we will never ever come home. But that was just part of the acceptance of the risk uh, to, to do things like this that are scary and risky. Uh, uh, Dick Scobie was my next door neighbor. And uh, I was his, um, I was the lead caps, uh, Capcom, lead capsule communicator. And so I spent a lot of time in training with him 
from mission control for both ascent and entry. I didn't do the on-orbit work, just the ascent and the entry part of it. Uh, for the liftoff, uh, Dick Covey uh, was a training uh, upcoming Capcom, and I was sitting right next to him at the console. And I know that morning it was kind of chilly in, uh, in Florida, and the ICE team had gone out and, uh, and looked around and, and realized uh, and, and, and came back and reported that there was nothing there uh, that presented any danger uh, to, um, to the, uh, the orbiter, the, the shuttle, the, shuttle the, the thermal protection system on the bottom of the shuttle. And so other than it being a chilly morning, uh, nothing else was said about it. So the countdown went as uh, as uh, as it should have, and uh, liftoff occurred. Uh, and um, for the first ten seconds, you go straight up, and then you roll over on your back, and then head across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, uh, at a point, about um, two minutes or so after liftoff, uh, that's probably not an accurate time, but in and around two minutes, um, we went through max dynamic pressure, which is uh, a velocity and a, a density of the, the atmosphere. So the, the, the structure itself could only handle so much dynamic pressure. So we would throttle back the, the main engines and in the, in the core of the solids, uh, they, they had built the core, shaped the core. So we got a little less thrust out of the solid rocket boosters. And then after we'd gone through this max dynamic pressure, uh, then we would throttle up again uh, we'd be in a smooth part in the solid rocket boosters. And so we had just called, uh, uh, let's see, it's a, th a throttle up Houston, Roger, go a throttle up. And right after that, uh, because I'm not the principal Capcom, Dick Covey is looking at his monitor in front of him, as were all of the other folks in uh, mission control. I was not looking at the monitors. I was actually looking at a monitor at real-time TV on a TV set that was right behind the flight director, Jay Green. And I saw this bell of this smoke and this this these flames. And I thought, my God, they've certainly improved the resolution. Because I at first thought it was the solid rocket booster separation. These were the ballistic motors going off. And then I said, there's no way possible for that to have occurred right here. So it was well before two minutes. Um, and I was about ready to pick up the mic and, and, and say Godspeed Challenger, but I didn't and I regret that. But I'm looking at real time. The monitors were still showing data because it was buffered data and was delayed three to five seconds or so. So everybody's still looking at their console. And I'm confused because I'm looking at this and I'm looking at that. And then suddenly all the data went blank or dash lines or zeros. But right behind me was the communications officer up there who was broadcasting to the public what was going on. And he was reading from a script. And so now the data's blank. The TV is still showing this. But this guy is still reading the script. And now everybody's confused as to what happened. And then I think he realized that something was wrong and he just went blank. And we're all just kind of in shock. Uh, we had no idea what had happened, but now we're looking at the big screen and we're seeing stuff fall. We see the solid rocket boosters heading off. 
uh, someplace and uh, uh, it was just, it was a horrible, it was just a horrible day. Jay Green uh, said, lock the doors. And so we sat uh, and evaluated the data that we had for the next four or five hours, uh, trying to determine whether there was something that we could have done to save the mission. And obviously there was nothing because there was no instrumentation on the solid rocket boosters uh, at all. And we would never have known about this uh, gas path because we didn't see the, uh, the, the black smoke uh, at that time. Uh, all we saw was the uh, all we saw was the the, the system just come apart, mm -hmm. uh, and so it was a really a bad day. It was really a bad day, and uh, you know our our hope when we left um, was uh, let's solve this issue because this program is so important to us that we we can't delay. We've got to continue flying. Uh, and so, it, you know, it took a lot of adult supervision to convince us that, no, we actually have to find the root cause. And I'm glad we did because it was an early design issue uh, that uh, caused the problem, not the cold weather, because mm. I, I had flown in March, the previous March, and I had the same issue with a solid rocket booster. And I know that day it was 85 degrees. Yeah. And so it wasn't the cold weather. Uh, that caused the uh, issue was the design of the uh, joint uh, itself. And so that was corrected. And also a heater was placed around that uh, uh, that joint. And so from that point on, you know, we continued flying until uh, Columbia. And, and you, not only from an astronaut perspective, but also from a, a, a support perspective and then from an administrative perspective, led the agency through all those difficult times and, and helped lead the agency through those difficult times. What's the, the lesson from that that you think that you think about? Well, I think that, um, and, and Gene Kranz has been given credit for this statement, but he, he, he swears he never said it. Failure is not an option. Failure is certainly an option. And we learn our lessons from failures. Uh, we, we don't we don't so much from successes, but from failures we do. Uh, we we have a tendency or had a tendency to redefine what normal is. And so if we flew and something was abnormal, but we saw that abnormal one time, then another time, then another time then we then define that abnormal as normal. And so you would have a problem. And if we successfully completed the mission, um, we kind of accepted anomalies as okay. And I, and I hope that what we really learned was that um, we have rationale for, for normalcy. And if we change the normal, or we see something that is not considered normal, then we have to go back to the rationale and say, well, why did we establish this in the first place? And so after the Columbia accident, then every flight rule, every direction, everything we wrote, we had rationale that justified why that was there. And if somebody wanted to come in and change this normal, they would have to argue the rationale also. 
Yeah. And so I think the agency really grew as these systems became more complex and, and more routine. And I think that you're, you will see that now. Um, there are, we, we still have anomalies, but they're not major anomalies. And what we've learned, um, Jeff, uh, uh, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, have been able to capture all of our history of losses and anomalies and make systems that um, with, without, the without the bureaucratic or the legacy of the government are able to make, make these things that uh, show me a very bright future. Uh, this um, uh, Starship that uh, Elon's gonna launch, if not the, maybe next week, if you can get FAA approval, he talks about it in support of the moon, working from the gateway to the moon. But I know what he really wants to do. He wants to take that vehicle and go to Mars with it. I right. like that. I really like uh, things like that. And uh, so that's raising the bar as far as I'm concerned. And he yeah. would not yeah. be satisfied with just being on Mars. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there. <laughs> uh, so I think that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy uh, NASA or being associated with people who are looking to the future and whose daddy never told him no. And I think that's what uh, I think that's what we got in our programs. Isn't that that wonderful? And that is truly a, a good summation of, of your life story, because never having been told no and pushing through all of that uh, really is truly inspirational. And, and I want to thank you for all of your contributions. Um, to our country, to history, and to uh, being here on this program and sharing it. Well, I thank you, Jeff. I sure appreciate it. I'm glad you, you showed that book of the new guys because it'll really tell the story of uh, individuals and, and uh, each one would be a little different, but all of us had this really desire to, to raise the bar. Yes, and we will have Meredith Bagby on uh, uh, in the future. She is coming on to talk about the entire story uh, a little bit more, but again, uh, I, I'm so grateful for your time and and hearing your personal story because it, it's it's far more in depth and there's so much more to it. And uh, I hope in the future you'll join us again and talk more detail about some of the things like your your thoughts about education and your thoughts oh, about technology yeah. moving forward because I know that's that inspires where you are now and where you are moving forward. And I think that in itself would would be a wonderful discussion. Sounds good. That's a that's a that, that's a date. <laughs> All right, Fred, thank you so much for joining us. I, I am absolutely grateful and, and I hope you have a wonderful evening. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. 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 And to all of you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. Uh, we are back next week on Tuesday, April 18th with Brian Schiff. We are going to talk about his experience flying on 9-11 as well as airline emergencies and so many things. He, he has stories that are, are, are truly edge of your seat and I can't wait to have him here on the show. So that's Brian Schiff next Tuesday, the 18th at 8 p.m. Eastern. On Tuesday, April 25th, Lynn Ripplemeyer, the first female 747 pilot, will be here on the show. She has one book already out there and another book on the way. It's going to be wonderful, and I look forward to having Lynn here on the show as well. And then on Tuesday, May 2nd, Noah is here with their Hurricane Hunters, the P3 Orion pilots, talking about what it's like to penetrate a hurricane 
and the all of the the work that they do putting uh, their lives in the middle of all of this in order to support research and help save lives on the ground with weather. Until next time, I'm Jeff Simon for Social Flight. Blue skies.